Would you turn with me in God's Word to the ninth chapter of Isaiah? And I'll read uh, again. We've read it a few times now. The glorious promise of the child that will be born to us, the son that will be given, who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. For there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought about uh, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel in the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, where we lack zeal for you, you have displayed zeal for us. By your zeal, you have made this promise and kept it, fulfilling the most glorious promise that Scripture puts forward, that Christ Jesus would come, that God in the flesh would dwell in Galilee, would live a life, would die a death, by the means of which the sinners who come to him for salvation are saved. Father, we pray that as we consider him and as we hear your word introducing him to us, Lord, may we see his glory. May we be moved to love and serve him more fully and deeply. And may we be comforted in knowing who he is for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through Isaiah looking at uh, these uh, messianic prophecies, uh, prophecies about the Messiah, uh, and really looking at just how astonishing it is that uh, such detail is given uh, to the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is at this point still 700 years away from coming in history, which is quite fantastic. We recognise that in, in a very real sense, all of Scripture points to Christ. Uh, everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward in some way to the coming of the Messiah, and everything in the New Testament is pointing back in some way to the work that the Messiah has done and continues to do. 
And yet, in some profound way, we come to the book of Isaiah and there is a, a, um, a treasure of details, a, uh, a tremendous uh, covering of really all of the life and ministry of this Messiah who will come. Uh, speaking of his life, speaking of his death, speaking of his, his manner and ministry, speaking of his humanity and his divinity, speaking of his kingdom, speaking of his people and the expansion uh, of his people and his kingdom. As Old Testament pictures of Christ go, this is maybe one of the fullest, uh, one of the most detailed, and it is uh, for this reason that we are lingering in the book of Isaiah. We started uh, four weeks ago, I think, we looked at the first prophecy in chapter 7, the, the great sign of Emmanuel, which we spoke about uh, and, and looked into. Now we've moved into chapter 9, uh, where we have this incredible prophecy of a, of a light that will shine into a dark place. Uh, the, one of the darkest places that they could imagine in the, uh, in the um, national borders of God's people was these, the, this area of Galilee. This uh, land of Zebulun and Naphtali, where Galilee is. Uh, and this was a, a, horror, a, a sinful place, a dark place. This was a worldly place. This is Galilee of the nations. This is Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, that's, that's an insult to Galilee. That's worldly Galilee. They are um, in darkness. And to them, the light has been promised. The light will come. Jesus ministered in, in Galilee uh, in direct fulfillment of this prophecy, that the, the darkest, the, the most awful, the most sinful, the most rebellious, historically, uh, region of God's um, uh, historic land for his people uh, is the place that the Messiah will come. Now that is quite uh, phenomenal uh, and a great encouragement and reminder to us that uh, if that is the pattern of, of God, then we ought to take great comfort when uh, faced with our own darkness. When faced with the darkness of this world, we recognise that it is the pattern of God to send light to the deepest darkness, to send light to the most worldly of places, to send Christ to the most sinful of people. And so we can take great comfort in that. This, uh, this one who would be born, uh, a number of things are said about him, uh, says that he will have a, a kingdom, uh, the uh, government will be upon his shoulders, and that the increase of that government uh, and the increase of the peace that comes through his govern government will see no end. Now that's wonderful news. Uh, there have been many governments, uh, there have been many kingdoms, and the expansion and the peace of those governments has always seen an end. Uh, this is the first where there will be no end to the increase and to the peace that this government, that this kingdom and that this prince will bring. Extraordinary things said uh, about uh, this, uh, this one. Uh, he is given uh, for a particular purpose. He's given for the purpose of bringing that peace. Uh, this is uh, why it says that this uh, son is given to us. That this child is given to us. That's, a, that's an odd way to talk about children being born. You know, you talk about a child being born to a mother or to a father or to a family... But to speak of a, a child being born to a, a nation or to a people, a corporate group, is quite a, a pointed and intentional thing. Uh, what Isaiah and what God is trying to say is the very purpose 
for this child's birth, the very purpose for this child, this son's being given, is for you. That this benefit of peace and this kingdom, uh, this eternal kingdom, will last forever for you. That's the whole point. He will sit on the throne of David. He will uh, reign in his place as one of his descendants, as the eternal one to sit upon that throne. There's wonderful, wonderful promises for us to uh, contemplate and to consider. But perhaps the most extraordinary element of this passage is the one that we've been really uh, stuck on for the last couple of weeks, is when we come to the names that are given to this son, to this child that is to be born. Names were not just noises to identify a person like we typically use them today. We sort of say, you know, someone's name, but it doesn't really have any meaning. It's just a way of getting their attention. In the scripture, names have meaning. Names have description. Names are intended to say something about the one being described. God is introducing a character to us, the character of his own son, and using names... Using these four names, and actually one already given in chapter 7, his name shall be Emmanuel, and now four more added to that, all that we might be introduced to this person, this son, this child, that is to come into the world, who is this light into the darkness. And these names have been very difficult to work through quickly. Uh, You know, when I first came to chapter 9 four weeks ago, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I, I thought I'll do one sermon on chapter 9. And then when I got to the names and basically gave, I think, two minutes to each name, so this is in my preparation time, I thought that was terrible. That was the worst experience I've ever had. I, I cannot do two minutes on each of these names. There is so much going on in these names, so much about Christ and what he will do in these names. And so we paused we came back and we did a wonderful counsellor a couple of weeks back, uh, looking at the, the wonderful nature of his counsel and him as a wonder in and of himself. So I'd encourage you to listen to that if you weren't here. Uh, today, I'm wanting to tackle the next two names in the list. I'm wanting to talk about the, the title Mighty God and Everlasting Father. And then, Lord willing, uh, next week, actually, Philip is preaching next week, but the one after that... Uh, Lord willing, it will be Prince of Peace and hopefully moving through the rest of the, the portion. So we come today to these two titles, Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Now I want you to just feel how startling these titles are for a child that would be born. A child is going to be born. A son is going to be given, and his name is Mighty God. Isn't that incredible? You know, gods are not born, generally speaking. Mighty God is not a a child born into a family or to a nation, generally speaking. There is, uh, there are sort of, you know, pagan concepts of gods sort of, you know, coming into the world or, or whatever it is. But this, is, this is, seems to be next level. This is mighty God. This is almighty God. This is the kind of, the one that is above and beyond all things. 
That is the name being given to a son that will be born. A son that hasn't even been born yet. A son that is 700 years down the track will begin his life, be born then. What is going on? There is something profound, there is something mysterious, there is something incredible which is being spoken in these words. Eternal God, eternal Father, mighty God is going to be born. Now this has led many uh, to question whether or not that is really what's being said. When looking at this passage, uh, there are many who would want to say that really this is just a description of a mighty and godlike man. There is a mighty and godlike man coming into the nation who will be a wonderful king, uh, a prince of peace. Now, uh, that is understandable why someone would want to give that interpretation, but if we let the scripture speak on its own terms, uh, we do come away with the clear sense that this cannot be a man that is being spoken of, just a man that is being spoken of. Um, the scripture nowhere comes anywhere close to describing a human being as mighty God. Just a human being. That, is, that would be uh, a, the height of uh, heresy to say such a thing. In fact, whenever you look through the scriptures and you look at these two words together actually, mighty and God, wherever they appear together they are always talking about God, talking about Yahweh. And I want to just give you a couple of verses because I want you to be absolutely sure in your minds that what God is saying in this passage is God is coming to be born. That is what he's saying. He is not uh, saying that some God-like mighty person will be born. Rather, God is saying through Isaiah, Almighty God will be born for you. That's what he's saying, 700 years before the fact. So let me just give a couple of verses. So I want to just read uh, Deuteronomy in chapter 10 and verse 17. I'll just read these. You don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to. Uh, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. Let me just give you uh, Nehemiah 9 and verse 32. Uh, For therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, uh, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us. God, the great, the mighty. You see what's being said here? Uh, If we could just give, if I could give you Jeremiah. In Jeremiah verse 32, and uh, chapter 32 verse 18. Uh, You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilty of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Okay. Now, in case anybody is still uh, a little bit um, uh, unsure of the impact of the meaning uh, behind this term, go with me just one chapter over to Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 21. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 21, which is one chapter after chapter 9. Now, you're all smart people, you knew that already, but I wanted to just emphasize this. 
It is one chapter over from chapter 9. You have this, in, this glorious statement. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. You see? To the mighty God. The name of God, the description of God with that word mighty is clearly pointing to a divinity, the divinity of Almighty God himself. This is absolutely astounding. Can you imagine what Isaiah thought when he wrote this? As he was, uh, as is said in in 2 Peter, uh, carried along by the Holy Spirit and and, and led to to write this, to speak this, to preach this. He he gets this vision, this this, uh, prophecy about a child to be born. And the description comes, oh, he's going to be a ruler, he's going to be a king, he's going to sit on David's throne and his name will be, what? His name will be Mighty God. Can you imagine he goes home and sits around the dinner table with his wife? And his wife says, how was the, you know, what did the Lord say today? And they start discussing and he says, well, you wouldn't believe it. He said that uh, there'd be a child born to us, a son given to us. Sit on the throne of David, he would, that his kingdom uh, would be an eternal kingdom. And guess what his name is? Mighty God. And his, his wife probably says, well, hang on, does that just mean... Like a, like a mighty human, like that's, like, that's kind of God-ish. And Isaiah says, you know, I don't think so, because, you know, the very next chapter, uh, I, I use this term to speak about God. This is, this, is, this is God. This is God. God is going to be born. God is going to be born. God is going to be a child. God is going to be a son given to us. Isn't that absolutely Unbelievable! Isn't that absolutely unfathomable? You know, we um, we get we get a, a I think an insight into what Isaiah was thinking actually uh, when we read uh, what Jesus says about Isaiah and about the other prophets in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, uh, Jesus has just quoted from Isaiah. He's just finished speaking the words that Isaiah first wrote. And then Jesus says this, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous persons longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 700 years ago, as Isaiah is writing these things, he is wanting to see what this light will look like, this light that will shine in Galilee, this light that will be almighty God. How will it look? How will it sound? What will this child look like? What will this child do? And of course, he's going to be uh, told more and more about what this child would do. And this would increase his excitement as he looks forward to this day that is going to be well outside of his earthly lifespan. And then the disciples got to see it. Got to see him. Got to see mighty God in the flesh in Galilee. This is absolutely phenomenal. You know, the the book, I think, that really um, captures this idea of mighty God in the Old Testament, perhaps more than any other book, would be the book of Job. Uh, In the book of Job, you have that, uh, that, that glorious phrase, El Shaddai, God Almighty. Uh, more than perhaps any other book. 
uh, in the Bible. And you have this, this occasion toward the end of the book of Job, you remember. Uh, it's the bit that perhaps gets quoted more than any other book of Job, other than chapter 1. Uh, where Job has kind of grumbled a bit about his circumstances with God. And finally, after hearing all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful counsel from various friends, God speaks. God speaks, and he doesn't say, Job, I need to explain to you why I've let this happen to you, or whatever it is. Rather, what God does is he gives them about four chapters worth of descriptions about himself. That was his answer. He says to Job, stand ready, I'm going to examine you. Stand ready, I'm going to question you, and you will answer. And he says, uh, where were you when I formed the earth? Where were you when I set boundaries for the sea? Where were you when I set the stars in the sky? Do you know how to rearrange the constellations of the sky? Do you know how to uh, uh, loose the cords of Orion's belt? And Job, in response to this, this onslaught, covers his mouth despises himself because I have seen the Lord. That is the answer that God gives to Job's complaint. Job is uh, ashamed of himself and his questioning of the wisdom of God, not because any explanation was given to him, but because he had forgotten for a moment who God was, that God was almighty God, and that God, of course, is good and wonderful and not to be questioned but to be trusted he is the one who gives strength to the horse the one upon whose wisdom the hawk soars he is the one who can draw out the leviathan with a hook he is the one who lays the foundations for the earth this is the God that Isaiah is speaking about when he says in 700 years a child is going to be born and he is going to be mighty God. The one who formed the foundations of the earth is going to be born in Bethlehem, is going to walk in Galilee, is going to do miracles, is going to be a child, a son born for you. That is what Isaiah is saying. You know, this is not um, a novelty of Isaiah. This is exactly what is said about Christ when he comes. Paul, in Colossians 1, gives this glorious statement. All things were created through him and for him. And in him all things hold together. That's not a New Testament invention. That's not a legendary expansion of the early church generations after Christ, which is what it has been chalked up to be uh, at times. This idea of legendary expansion is this idea that uh, uh, you know, you've got something that will happen and it's, it's quite noteworthy, it's significant, and then the generations that follow expand upon the legendary status of what happened. So when Jesus came, he didn't really do miracles, but the disciples, in their telling of the accounts of the telling of the stories, started to embellish the story and add miracles and so on. And by the time you get to Colossians 1, now you've suddenly got Jesus who is God Almighty holding all things together. The trouble with that theory is God Almighty was who he was 700 years before he arrived. That's not legendary expansion. 
That is introducing the legend who would come. Jesus Christ. That 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, he was declared to be the one who laid the foundation of the earth. He was declared to be the one who could rearrange the constellation of the stars. He was declared to be the one who could tame the wild beasts. He is the one, the almighty God. And I mean, what comfort does this give us as Christians? To know that our saviour Jesus Christ is almighty God. That he actually comes with endless power, endless authority, endless reign, endless love. That every promise that he has made, he has ample power to bring about and will. Because he is mighty God. That he as mighty God has all the authority that God has. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to save sinners. He has the authority to command obedience. He has the authority to judge the world. He has authority to accomplish everything that he has said he will accomplish. He can rescue every wandering sheep flawlessly and without losing a single one. He can give rest to weary, heavy laden souls who come to him without fail because he is not just a very godly and very mighty man, but he is mighty God. He can build his church and give victory over the world. He can sanctify his people and present them holy and blameless before the Father. He can save to the utmost those who come to God through him and never fail to do so. Because he is mighty God. Do you see who is being introduced to you? In Isaiah chapter 9. It is a marvellous introduction. We need to uh, move on to the second title. Uh, There is so much that we could meditate on. uh, In mighty God. But let's just move to uh, the next one. Everlasting Father. Uh, The third of the names. I thought I would do that today because it does complement well, mighty God. They, they fit together very well. Because there is really only one being who is everlasting. Right? Who is that? God. Everlasting Father. This is a description of God. God is Alpha and Omega. God is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. The God Almighty. Revelation 1.18. Uh, that is... Uh, what it means to be everlasting. Uh, it is God alone who has immortality. And that is who Jesus is. Um, the everlasting Father is born as a son. Does that blow your mind? The everlasting one is born as a child. Mighty God. How on earth is this possible? You can imagine. The, the, the emotions, the thoughts that are going around the dinner table of Isaiah's household when he's thinking about this and sharing this with his wife and thinking about how to present it to the, the nation. Thinking it through, and, and in many ways he wouldn't have had the full picture. How is it possible that everlasting God is going to be born? That mighty God, that everlasting Father will come as a child. How is that possible? The full answer, of course, doesn't come until the New Testament. We have this 
the, the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word took on flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's the answer to the, the riddle that they would have been unravelling and working on. But can you just start to ponder with me the mystery and the glory of the Incarnation? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can discover its strange design, explore its strange design? In vain the firstborn sheriff, uh, sheriff tried to sound the depth of love divine. You see, this is the most profound thing that could ever take place. No one would make this up. No one could, you couldn't chalk this down to legendary expansion. This is a promise that makes no sense unless it comes from God. It is so big. Now when we come to the, the second word in that title, we, we were everlasting and we've got Father. We need to be a little bit careful in dealing with that, uh, that word, Father, because we understand that uh, Jesus is not God the Father. Um, this is God the Son. And yet... Isaiah speaks of him as a father, everlasting father. And, and it is right that he does so because there are many uh, wonderful truths that can be gleaned from the metaphor of fatherhood applied to Christ Jesus. Now there are a number of metaphors that are applied to Christ to explain him to us. He is our brother. He is our husband. He is our father. These are, are complementary and, and trying to fill out the full picture of who Jesus is. So who is, uh, where do we see Christ's fatherly, um, uh, fatherly nature and fatherly care on display? If I could just read a couple of things that I think would unpack it for you. So Jesus is a father, first of all, in the sense that he is the head and the representative of his family. That's an, that's an important picture to get our heads around. In the same sense that, uh, that Adam was a father of the whole human race and a representative for them before God. And in his work, he won for us uh, the reward of sin and death and corruption. But another father is given, an everlasting father, who will also represent his family, who will represent his people, who will win for them righteousness, peace and eternal life. So Jesus is a father to us in that he is the head and he is a representative before God. Jesus is also a father to us in that he provides bread for us to eat. That he sustains us spiritually and gives uh, everything we need to, to live, to breathe, to walk and to be strong spiritually and indeed physically. He is a father also in that he trains us. In righteousness, that he uh, is, is tender and he, he teaches us and he's a schoolmaster and he's a prophet and a king that leads and instructs. This is of the utmost comfort to us who are in great need of his fatherly training in righteousness. He is a, uh, a father in the sense that he is a protector. He protects us from the world, from the devil from uh, the ultimate, ultimately from the consequences of our sin. He is shielding us from these things. As a father, if there is a threat at your gate, your job is to go and meet that threat. 
as our father, he goes to meet our great threat. As a father, if there is a debt that needs to be paid, you are the one to pay it. As a father, if there is a cross that needs to be carried on behalf of your family, on behalf of your children, it is your responsibility to carry it. And Christ plays that role for us to the utmost and fully and perfectly. I would also just add also, Christ is a father to us in that he leaves us an inheritance. Many fathers wish to leave their children an inheritance. It is an honourable thing to do. Uh, We wish to leave our children with uh, enough money to have a nice life, to have stability and security, to have a home to live in. But no father has ever provided an inheritance to their children anything like what Christ has provided to his children. Eternal security, an eternal home, an eternal life. No father has ever given anywhere near what Christ has given to his children. He is the perfect father. And this is why he is rightly called the perfect father of us. And notice this as well. That Jesus Christ is not just these things temporarily. This is why there is that great partnership between these two words. Everlasting Father. It is not just that he is everlasting and a father. He is the everlasting father. You know, I think most earthly fathers recognise and maybe even celebrate that the day will one day come where I don't have responsibility for my kids anymore. There's always going to be some responsibility. But as they get older and as they become able to stand on their own two feet, as they you know, get married and, and move out of the house and so on, there is a, there is a decreasing, a significant decreasing of, of responsibility that we have for our children. Jesus feels none of that decrease in his responsibility because he is the eternal father. He is always the one to provide our food. He is always the one to meet the enemy at the gate. He is eternally the one who represents us as our head before God. And he is eternally the one that provides for us an inheritance that will never perish. He is not like earthly fathers that do their best to fulfill their role as a father and look forward to the day where that responsibility will not be there. Never does Jesus Christ say to his children, you know, you have, you're 30 years old now, you should have this sorted out. You've been a Christian now for this long, you should really have this stuff sorted. You shouldn't just keep coming back to me for money. This is what uh, maybe earthly fathers would say. Jesus never says that. Because Jesus is eternally a father. And here's the great truth. If Jesus is eternally a father, then you are eternally his son or daughter. Jesus never uh, gets you to a place where you are, have grown beyond his care. Grown beyond need for him. He is forever and always the one to protect, to provide, to lead, to represent and to give eternally. Now, when we come to this title, Everlasting Father, 
There's another angle on it that I just want to run by you and help you to consider. Uh, the, the Hebrew phrase behind it, uh, everlasting father, uh, a literal way to translate that phrase would be father of eternity. Father of eternity. Now, many translations translate it eternal father or everlasting father, taking the word eternity to be a description uh, of the father. Okay, so uh, father of eternity in the sense that he is father for eternity. And that is a very reasonable and straightforward interpretation of father of eternity. But there is another way that that could be interpreted, which I wonder if is at least buried in there somewhere to be brought out. The, the notion of being the father of something could indicate that he is actually the founder of something, the sustainer of something, the producer of something. So if you uh, remember in Genesis chapter 4, there are some people named sons of Lamech who are called the father of uh, musical instruments, the father of uh, farming and, and, and crop growing and so on. And, and what they mean is, what the, uh, the text is saying is, these ones were the founder of those things. And so when we come here and we see uh, wonderful counsellor, mighty God, father of eternity, we can very easily get the impression that what's being said is the child that's going to be born, the son that's going to be given to us, is actually the founder of all eternity. The child that's going to be born is the founder of eternity. Can you hear that? Can you imagine Isaiah bringing that up? Yeah, and the next name, uh, everlasting father. Father of eternity. Founder and establisher of everything. From eternity past to eternity future. That's what this child is. That's who this child is. Bearing in mind that this founder of eternity walked the earth 2,000 years ago. That if you got in a time machine and went to Galilee, you could shake hands with the founder of eternity. You could sit at the feet of the founder of eternity as he walked in Galilee. Can you see how unfathomable this is? It is beyond us. Words have reached their limit in expressing the glory of what is happening and what happened in the, in the uh, incarnation. The eternal father becomes the son. The founder of eternity is born to us a child. But do we have to decide between those two interpretations? Do we have to say, well, it's either everlasting father or it's father of eternity, one or the other? And I don't think we do. Thankfully, I think we can hold on to both because both are indeed taught in the scriptures. Colossians 1, as we've said, all things made through him and for him. Before He was before all things and in him all things hold together. Does that mean anything less than founder of eternity? All things made through him. All of eternity made through him. Before all things, before all eternity. And in him all eternity is held together. 
And also the other description is eternal father. All of the things that we've said about him being the everlasting father are true. All that he provides for his people, for his church, are fatherly things that he provides. And that he longs to provide. And that he loves to provide. John uh, 14 and verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. But I will come to you. He is the provider, the protector, the instructor, the benefactor, the head and the representative. He is those things eternally. And so we rejoice. But this is the glorious, glorious metaphor of Christ as Father. That we are helped to understand Him. We are helped to trust Him. We are taught to, to cry out and to expect help. As we look at the way that earthly fathers interact with their children. As we consider the responsibility that earthly fathers have toward their children. When a child is hungry and they cry out whose responsibility is to feed them. When a child is afraid and is crying out for security, whose responsibility is it to meet that need? When a child meets a challenge that they are not able to overcome, whose responsibility is it to overcome it for them and with them? It is their father. And Christ is the everlasting father. And we are the everlasting children of his. God has introduced you to Jesus. And he has said this is who he is. These are his names. Will you believe in him? Will you trust in him? Will you accept his fatherly love? His fatherly care? Will you bow before him as mighty God? Let's pray. Our almighty Father in heaven, you have so well represented yourself in the person of Jesus Christ, who comes to us as everlasting Father. Lord, may you help us. May you help us to trust. May you help us to come. May you help us to submit. The words are there. The promise is made. The truth is glorious. The only thing left is for us to be granted by grace the ability to come, to trust, and to believe. Lord, would you help us? In Jesus' name. Amen.